0: Well, good evening, it's good to be with you once again, and have the honor of opening up God's Word with my brothers and sisters in Christ at Charlotte Chapel. So let's do that, let's get to work and look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 1 here in just a moment. Let's pause before we dive right in, let's ask once again for the Lord to guide our time in His Word. Let's pray together. Father, those are amazing words that we just sang, that there is no work too hard for you. And when we look at our lives and we see the work that needs to be done there, that gives us great hope, knowing that there's no work too hard for you, and we can be still in this place and have the assurance and the confidence that your power is moving here. And because of the death of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary, His death, burial, and resurrection, we can have confidence in your love and your forgiveness. And we as your people gather here tonight in that hope, because apart from that hope, Father, we have no hope. And so God, give us that sense of awe and wonder and delight and joy and humility as we look into your word. Give us a clear picture of who you are tonight, Father, because the flesh simply cannot paint you, cannot describe you. We need that to come to us by the power of your spirit, empowering your word preached. So give us eyes to see by your spirit. Give us ears to hear and hearts that would apply what you would say to your church. Because we ask all of this in the beautiful, and the holy, and the glorious name of our risen Savior, and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, as you heard earlier, I am uh, in the process of coming to the end of my degree that I came here to start. I, I chose those words very carefully. I am in the process of coming toward the end of being done with this degree that I have started. Uh, Because it seems like with a PhD or any kind of research degree, you never really feel done or anywhere near done until someone tells you, okay, you're done. Quit working on this. You don't have to read these things anymore. So after three long years, I'm coming to the end of what seemed like it would never end, especially for my wife, bless her heart, um, coming here in this interminable degree that lay ahead of us. And as you might expect, as you come to the end of a research degree or this degree that I've been undertaking, I, I, just now that I'm coming to the end, I just now feel qualified, honestly, to begin. I'm, I'm right at the end of it, and I just now feel like, okay, I think I'm ready to start this, because there's some things that have come into focus, become clear for me, that actually make research somewhat enjoyable to do, as strange as that sounds, because things are somewhat clearer than they were at the beginning. When I first started, and some other research students here might uh, remember this phase in your work, they were encouraging us, they encouraged me to develop what they called a research question. It's pretty self-explanatory what that is. It's that question that's going to guide your research. You're basically, the answer to that question will become your argument for this thing that you're writing. So develop a good research question, they told us. And no problem, I said, I can do that. Now, what you should know about me, and if you know me very well, you will know very soon and quickly and obviously that I'm not a natural-born academic. And so when they said, come up with a research question, I said, hey, that's no problem. I ask questions all the time. I can do this. So I would sit around. I would sit on my desk in the chair in front of my desk. And I would have a pencil in my mouth, and there'd be crumpled up paper all around me. And after about two, two and a half hours, I would come up with just an an awesome question like, What does God do? And I learned that was a little broad. So I would ask, I would narrow it down and think I was just, had become very, very erudite by saying, Oh, okay, what has everyone in church history ever thought about stuff about God? Now there's a question. And I had to keep being told by my very endlessly patient supervisor, no, that's not a good question. We need to narrow this down. We need to find a better scope. We need to find a better intent behind this, something that can be researched and answered in three years, hopefully. And so after those kinds of meetings, I came to understand a little something about research questions and the importance of developing a good, clear research question. And I'm not going to tell you what mine is or mine was, because all the other research students here would go, no, that's really not very good at all. Um, and it's probably not. So that remains to be seen. But once I had that good guiding question, my priorities for research became clear. Because without that, I could just wander off into rarely visited sections of the library and never be able to come out because I had no compass to get me out of there. Every, every title that I came across in the library would have been of equal importance I don't really have any questions guiding me, so I'll look at that, or I'll look at this, and I'll pick this up, and I'll walk home with 300 books, and not really have any clear idea of what I was trying to get at. But when that question became clear, I had priorities, and then I could walk with some swagger through the library and say, sorry, book, I don't need you, I don't need you, you don't even interest me, I can't read your title, and I don't care, I would just keep... (laughs) I would keep walking through the aisles, and the librarians became very impressed with the swagger I would walk through. And I'd say, I need this book. I do not need that one or that one. And so it became clear what my priorities were because I had a very clear question. The question became for me like a lightsaber that I would. Do you know who knows what a lightsaber is? Don't admit that. <laughs> it's like a machete, like a really cool machete that you would hack through things that you did not need to pay attention to, so that you could focus very clearly on the task. At hand, what were the most important priorities? And I I belabor that point because I want to ask this question. Spiritually, in your walk with Christ, do you have that sense of purpose? That sense of direction? Is there some sort of guiding principle, some sort of question, or anything that guides your walk with Christ? Or are you meandering through this sea of ideas in this life, equally interested in all things and everything is equally important and you bring it all together and you centralize maybe obscure things and it becomes hard to know what's important, what are my priorities? What is it that should be driving my walk with Christ? Do you have not a clear research question, but do we have clear discipleship questions? And as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, I've come up with two questions I want to propose to to be able to grasp a hold of, not the questions that Paul is answering here, but the answers that he gives. This chapter is full of answers that he's throwing to young Timothy. And so I was reading, and as I was reading and preparing this message, I said, there's so many answers here. What we need is good, clear questions that were on the mind of the apostle. What are the answers that he's giving here? What are the questions that we need to be asking? So I'm proposing two questions, and these are not infallible, but these are the questions I've used to, to, to grab a hold of the truths that Paul has written to Timothy here. And the two questions are simple, and they come in the title of the message, Whom do I serve, and what does he want? Whom do I serve, and what Does he want? Now, I'll answer the questions very succinctly, hopefully, at the beginning, and we'll just unpack it from there. Because the questions, really, it becomes obvious, doesn't it? Whom do I serve? I serve God. Ultimately, I serve, I am in the service of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My first priority, my first responsibility is not to any human power. My first responsibility is to the God who created heavens and earth and put all powers in place. Whom do I serve? I serve God. And what does He want? He wants faith that leads to godliness. We're told that without faith it's impossible to please God. What does He want? He wants our faith in Him that leads to godliness. He doesn't just want good behavior. He doesn't just want me to act in a certain way, to be thought of in a certain way, to be seen a certain way. He wants my heart. He wants my faith, my trust in Him. And the kind of faith that leads to godliness. He wants me to believe him, but have a kind of belief that leads to trust and obedience. Whom do I serve and what does he want? That's what we're looking at in First Timothy chapter 4 tonight. Before we dig in, I want to back up a really long ways and get a running start into our text for tonight. So that we can see that biblically there is a there's this pattern being set, there is a this kind of pattern set in texts of the Bible from the beginning of the Old Testament, and don't worry, we're not gonna I'm not gonna unpack the entire Old Testament, we're not gonna be here till tomorrow, don't worry. But from the beginning, there is this pattern of God saying who he is and then what he wants from his people. When God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 17, is making a covenant with Abraham, with Abram at this point. He appears to him and he says, I am almighty God. And then what does he say next? He says, walk before me and be blameless. We see it again when God gives his moral law in Exodus chapter 20. He says, I am, this is identity, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not take take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. Now, I want to pause right there before we continue this little survey. And if each one of those commandments landed like a punch on your jaw or in your gut, because you hear these commandments, you say, yep, broken that one. I'm not even close on that one. I haven't even thought about that one. I've broken all these one by one, by one, by one. You hear them and you say, I, I'm not living up to that standard. I want to pause here and say that there is hope. God gave us this law. He gave us this law to drive us to our knees so that we had no plea but help. That we had nowhere else to look but to Him. And so when you hear God say, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall do all these things. And you say, I can't do all these things. You're exactly right. You need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. And hope came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And He died on the cross of Calvary and He took the punishment on Himself for every time you and I break one of those commands. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That we are sinners all. Christ came into this world to save sinners. And so when we hear these things that God wants, keep looking to Christ. Look again and again to Christ. That's where our hope is found. So we see that pattern in Genesis chapter 17, in Exodus chapter 20. and We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we hear Moses say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. It's who He is, that's what He wants. We hear it in Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. We hear it in the lips of the apostles, or the prophets, excuse me. On the lips of Isaiah, the word of the Lord comes. And it says, the word of the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And what does this God of all creation, this God of all heaven and earth, what does He want? He says, this is the one that I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And we hear it on the lips of Jesus in John chapter 5. He says, I am the vine. That's me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And we hear it from the mouth of the blinded Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. When he's knocked to the ground and he looks up and he says, Who are you, Lord? And the response comes, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And it's that same Saul of Tarsus, now called Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ that's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, who's had this amazing experience, this amazing interaction with the risen Christ. And now he's writing to this young pastor in Ephesus. And he's telling him, you need to have those priorities straight, Timothy. Remember whom you serve and remember what he wants. Because there are millions of people out there, there are millions of other options out there that are trying to distract you, that are trying to get your eyes on other things and other priorities. But keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on him, Timothy. And remember whom you serve and what he wants. Now, Paul does not come right out and ask the questions that we're asking tonight. Whom do I serve and what does he want? But he answers, answers them in a crystal clear way. You might say, well, where does that come in the text? We've had the text read for us all uh, so far. So I'm not going to read the entire thing just now. We'll read the sections in a moment. But I want you to look at whom do we serve? Verse 10 says that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. And what does he want? Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, Train yourself to be, what? Godly. So whom do we serve? God. What does he want? Godliness. And he's writing to young Timothy to embrace that and to stay on track. So the first part of our text is Paul describing people who have departed from those priorities, right? They've lost sight of the importance of keeping the centrality of the purity of the gospel and focusing on who is God, what is the gospel. They've replaced other teachings for that, made those central. So these are those that are departed. Have you ever seen the show on TV? Maybe. Maybe it's just me. Freaky Eaters. You seen the show? Nobody? Okay. <laughs> it's a show that, called Freaky Eaters that... What they, they follow around these people who, for one reason or another, have abandoned the core of nutrition, and the only thing, meat and vegetables, they've abandoned these things, and the only thing they eat are things like Rice Krispies. Do you have Rice Krispies here? Tell me yes. Yes, good. It's all they're eating is like Rice Krispies. Morning, Rice Krispies. Lunch, Rice Krispies. Supper time, Rice Krispies. What do you have them for midnight snack? Rice Krispies, there you go. Constantly, these people are eating just one thing. They focus on it so much, it's fine to eat Rice Krispies. They're good. They snap, they crackle, they pop. (laughs) It's fine to do that, but they emphasize it to the point that it becomes what? Perverse. It's not natural to do that. It's not right. You've taken the core of what should be your nutrition, and you've taken Rice Krispies, and you've put it in the place of that. And what we're looking at here in the first section of our text is not freaky eaters, but freaky discipleship. There have been teachings that are kind of peripheral ideas or they heard someone say at one point and they've scooted the gospel out of the center and they've taken these central, these kind of strange, freaky doctrines and have put them right in the core. They've abandoned, it says they've turned away from the purity, the centrality of the gospel. Instead, they've emphasized other teachings to the point that they have become perverse but the second part of our text is not looking at the departed those who have departed from the faith or departed from the core of sound doctrine But Paul is then describing what it means to be devoted, not departed but devoted Timothy, be a devoted servant of your king and he says if you keep these priorities who do you serve? What does he want? your mind, he says in verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Brought up in the truths of the faith and of good teaching that you have followed. So just the way I'm breaking this down is two sections. The departed, we're looking at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, and the devoted. What Paul is describing for young Timothy. What, what should happen? What should be the hallmark of correct discipleship. So, let's look really quickly at what Paul is teaching here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read chapter, verses 1 through 5 once again, just to remind us of what it says. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So first of all, I want you to notice Paul's choice of language here. He's pointing to what lies behind, in one sense, he's pointing to what lies behind errors that have crept into the church, that have crept into the faith. It says, those who have abandoned the faith for man-made doctrines are, verse 1, following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, I want you to try to imagine that in modern day context. There's a debate going on between people over doctrine and one person makes an interesting point, and the other person says, "Excuse me, that's that's an interesting point, but if I might offer my own penetrating syllogism here, you're taught by demons, right?" He kind of cuts to the chase. He doesn't say, "Well, you know, one doesn't really follow from the other." He says, "No, no. When the gospel is being replaced by these peripheral, strange doctrines, and you're setting them up as tests for true faith in Christ." These are doctrines, these are we, we get the, we get the smell of evil going on here. The deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. I think the sense of the word liars there is speakers of falsehood. Because I think it might be, be very possible that they fully believe what they're saying. So it's not like they're saying, well, I know this isn't true, but I'm going to try to deceive the church. They might fully believe that what they're saying is true. Paul says that's no reason for them to be accommodated. They might be very sincere in the errors that they're teaching. But those errors should not be accommodated. So next, notice what they're teaching. Probably for some sort of dualism or dualistic concern, they're preventing people from getting married because they think sexual intimacy will somehow corrupt the soul even in the, the bonds of marriage. And the next, they're, and he kind of expands on this one a little bit more, but next they're, they told people to stay away from certain kinds of food because it acts as kind of a, a spiritual litmus test for the spiritual enlightenment. That they would stay away from certain kinds of food and they would not be corrupted by them. So why is Paul so worked up about this? Why the strong language, the deceiving spirits and taught by demons and speakers of falsehood and hypocritical liars and their consciences are seared with hot irons. Why is he so worked up? Well, it, it relates back to what happened in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Timothy is told that a major part of his job in Ephesus was to combat false doctrine. Right. It's not just that there's people out there that aren't fully embracing the apostles' doctrine, but there's people out there that are proposing a new one, and others are being attracted by it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he tells Timothy, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And in verse 6 it goes on to say in chapter 1, Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So he's warning Timothy that out there on the periphery, right, there's people coming up with these strange doctrines that they're trying to make central, and the, the thing that's getting Paul so worked up and so upset is that there are far too many within the household of faith that are eager to join this secret club with this secret knowledge. He says, Timothy, be a good steward of the truth and of sound doctrine and keep them from... Erring. Remind them whom they serve and what he wants. Paul hits on this theme again in 2 Timothy. I'm sure you're familiar with it, with this text. When he says that the day will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now in our day, it may be that the the errors that people have crept into might not be as stark as what Paul is describing there. But you might get something in our day where congregations gather together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and they hear sermons that are more akin to Aesop than the apostles. Right? Be good. Believe in yourself. Get rich. Be happy. Think big. Forget about sin. There's no such thing as hell. Don't worry about such things. Let's just help our fellow man. Let's be good to one another. Us four, no more. Let's just, let's, let's, let's just be good to one another. Let's not point to the one true and living God. Rather, let's focus on what's going to make people happy. Or, you perhaps get groups that centralize, and these are generally very fringe type groups that centralize a certain teaching and build this whole intricate system of teachings on perhaps one line in the text of Scripture and they build this entire system of teaching on it. Now, there's a lot of examples you can give here and I'm going to give just one, but before I do, I want to be careful. Because, well, I'll give away what I'm going to be talking about, but Well, I want to be careful in saying this because I know a lot of godly, sincere... And I've noticed I've got your attention here because I said I want to be careful. I know a lot of godly, sincere Christians that I love to be around that affirm the gift of speaking in tongues as normative in the church. I love these brothers and sisters in Christ, and they they in no way represent the example I'm about to give here. It will sound like that, and somebody afterwards will say, Are you saying... This, that this relates to everyone who affirms this gift, and I will say, I'm not saying that. So let's go ahead and answer that. What I'm saying is, this particular case, this, this confrontation that I had as a new Christian, this is what stands out in my mind when I hear Paul speaking in First Timothy chapter 4. I found many times after sermons are preached, and someone's standing at the back door, or later on, and someone comes up and says, did you mean, the answer usually is no. No, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I wasn't clear enough, but it, usually if it's, were you trying to say that, and then there's some thing that comes after that, it's no. So let me go ahead and apologize or prevent that kind of thing here by saying I am not painting with a broad brush here. I'm sharing an experience that I had with one conversation, and I love how rapt you are right now. You want to hear what I'm going to say. You can't stand it. One conversation that I had that I think typifies this kind of, this kind of error, this kind of danger not painting entire denominations, or groups of people said hereafter. Here we go. Once, when I was a Christian sorry, when I had just become a Christian <laughs> see that's what I 'm talking about. no. Um, I had been a Christian for about a year, and um, I was in high school, and I was uh, dating the Chrissy, the person who is now my wife. Um, And we, uh, Christians, new Christians, and we are, uh, we went to this uh, contemporary Christian concert, Stephen Curtis Chapman, everybody know Stephen Curtis Chapman? Good, a few people. And contemporary Christian concerts are absolutely wonderful, because they bring out all sorts of people. And contemporary Christian concerts are absolutely dreadful, because they bring out all sorts of people. (laughs) Well, I'm sitting there, and, you know, new Christian again, been a Christian for about a year, and... At um, this concert, and the music has just started up. It's, it's blaring. It's just started. And we're all excited. The great adventure. This is great. This is amazing. I mean, the, the music is just awesome. And all of a sudden, I get this hard tap on my shoulder. And it's the kind of tap you realize you probably should not ignore. So it's a hard tap on my shoulder. And I turn around, and there is this bright red face of a man in his mid-50s, and he's excited about something, and I know it's not the music. <laughs> he's worked up about something. He's got something on his mind. It was a very stark image that kind of haunts my dreams until this day. This big face, big glasses, thick tape on them, and that's all fine, but this was a stark image. I'm just saying. It was right in my face, and remember, the music is blaring at this point. And he says, do you want to hear about speaking in new tongues? And I said, "I'm a new Christian. I don't really know what that means. I don't know what that is." And I said, "No. I want to hear Stephen Curtis Chapman. So that's why I'm here." And so, you know, I start to turn around and start to, you know, get back into the uh, the concert, and he yells in my ear, "You know, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't really have the Holy Spirit." And I'm a new Christian. And I'm thinking to myself, I turn around and I say, I'm a child of the Reformation. I believe that, f- that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I didn't really say that, but wouldn't that have been incredible if I had? <laughs> I'm just looking for an opportunity in life to say something like that, and it was now, I guess. But no, I turned around, I'm a new Christian, remember, I turn around, and the first thing that comes to my mind is, man, i got to sit in front of this guy for the entire rest of the concert. And he's going to be watching me. So what do I do to make this guy believe that I have the Holy Spirit? Right? I start asking myself, well, should I clap in a certain way? I mean, should I raise my hands? Should I, what should I do? Because I want him to believe that I have... And, th- and then I stop myself, praise the Lord. And I didn't go down that road. I just you know, turned around... Nicely and said, I'm just going to listen to the music now. Thank you. Because if I had gone down that road of how can I make this guy believe that I have the Holy Spirit, I would have no longer been concerned with whom do I serve and what does he want. But who is this dude and what does he want? Right? Because the thing is, he was not being an evangelist for Christ. He was not even being an evangelist for the Holy Spirit, as strange as that would have been. He was being an evangelist for a gift that he had elevated to the point of centrality in the faith and had become a shibboleth for true faith. A test that if you don't do this, you don't really trust in Christ. That's dangerous. And the sad thing and the scary thing, I think, for most of us is that I have seen Baptists who do that with baptism, Calvinists who do that with Calvinism, Arminians who do that with Arminianism. We take these doctrines that are distinctive to our uh, congregation or distinctive to our group, and we make them central to the point that if other people do not affirm this particular nuance, we, we, we begin to doubt their salvation. We begin to doubt. Are they, are they really? Do they really know Christ? Paul is warning Timothy, he says, watch out for people who take these peripheral type teachings, these peripheral type things, and put them in the center because they've unhinged the gospel from where it rightly belongs. That's dangerous, Timothy. He says, watch out for these. That's why Paul's angry here. He said, there will come a day when people will be attracted to the mystery and intrigue of a special club with special knowledge. And these, as Jesus said in Matthew fifteen nine, that these... These teachings, these doctrines that they've created are but, are, that are but teachings of men. But you, Timothy, keep teaching good, sound, pure gospel doctrine. And that's what he moves on to next. We've looked at the departed, those who have taken these kind of peripheral type ideas and made them central. And then he moves on to the devoted. Timothy, this... this This is who you should be. Verses six through ten. Says if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So he says, if you point these things out to the brethren. So what are these things? It's not just the things that are taking place in chapter 4 thus far, but he's pointing further back to what's gone on at the beginning of the letter. In chapter 2, verse 1, he tells Timothy to be a praying people. Be a people known for prayer, Timothy. In 2.4, he says, the gospel should be taken to all people, Timothy. There is but one God and one mediator between God and man, and His name is Jesus Christ. It comes in 2.5. In 2.9, He's told that God's people should live pure lives. And in chapter 3, those who lead and serve the church should be godly. And then at the end of chapter 3, which we heard read just a moment ago, He rehearses that beautiful hymn of the faith there, where he says that the Son of God came into the world in a body, He was vindicated by the Spirit, and He was taken up again into glory. He's saying, Timothy, these things point out again and again to the brethren. Point them out to those who come to worship. These central truths of the gospel and of our faith. And be aware that there are people who are trying to attract others away from that. Be it the current of culture, saying such things are backward Whatever it may be, you keep hold on those sound truths, Timothy. He says, have nothing to do with trifles or ridiculous things that distract you from this truth. He calls them godless myths or old wives' tales. The SV and some other translations translates it irreverent, silly myths that would distract you from the gospel. Rather, train yourself toward godliness. Now, in First Timothy, godliness, according to one commentator, Gordon Fee, the godliness really is referring to who is God, what is the true gospel, and then what is the visible expression in correct behavior. Or, as I've chosen to express the questions, whom do we serve and what does he want? Whom do we serve and what do we want? does he want? He says that your physical body is not nearly as important as training yourself to be godly. Training your physical body is important. He says it does profit a little. It's good to be healthy. But bear in mind that training your spirit or becoming godly prepares you not just for this life, not to just be good-looking in this life or to be healthy in this life, but it prepares you for the life to come. So, to bring it to modern parlance, if you have to choose between the we fit and the word, choose the word. If you have to choose, if your time is coming down to choosing between time for physical recreation or physical exercise and you're neglecting your spiritual exercises, choose the spiritual exercises. doesn't mean to the neglect of that. But choose those things that will prepare you, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Exercise yourself for the purpose of godliness, Timothy. Health is important. But no matter how much we exercise, no matter how much we try to profit the body, no matter how much we try to adorn the body with possessions, our body is going to fail and will break down. They're saying, keep a close eye on what the Lord has called us to, Timothy. Timothy to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Some of the godliest people that I have met have been people whose bodies have been racked with disease. It's an interesting thing, that. That as our body begins to break down, we become less reliant on things of this world. And God prepares us for what's to come. When I was pastoring in Florida... Uh, There was one of the most dynamic leaders we had in the church was a man in his middle. uh, He was a middle-aged man. His name was David. You never know it when I first moved there and started working in that church, but David was battling cancer. had had a decade-long battle with cancer. It was a debilitating thing that was attacking him slowly. And after I'd known him for about two years, his health began to decline, And he was taken to the hospital where his family was told that he was very near the end. I mean, this looked like the last time he was going to go to the hospital and he looked like he was not coming out. And so they prepared themselves for that. And one day, uh, when he was very, indeed, very near the end, I received a phone call at about 3 a.m. And David's wife was on the phone and says, Can you please come to the hospital? David has requested to speak with you. And so, of course, the hospital is just a small town. hospital is five minutes from my house. I get ready. go down there very quickly. And I walk in, and David and his wife are just sitting very quietly, having a conversation. And she says, just come here. You'll need to lean in for him to speak to you, but he wanted to speak to you. And so I walked into the room and came up very close to the bed and leaned over, and he shared some private words that are a private treasure between myself and him. But then... He reached over to his bedside table and he picked up his Bible. And he said, I want you to have this. It was a, it was a hardcover NIV study Bible and it was mangled. I mean, it was absolutely destroyed. It had, he had duct tape running along the spine of this thing. The binding was coming loose, the pages were black on the edges. You could see that there were things about to fall out, but they had been t- kind of taped in into the covers and, and he had duct tape again you know, running along there, and it was just it was black from his fingers touching the edges of these pages, and the Bible was falling apart and he held it together and he said, "I want you to have this and as you can imagine, I was almost too overwhelmed to speak, and we talked for a while we, we spoke together and we prayed together and we visited for a while and then I left to let him get some rest and, of course, visited him over the next several days. And over the next several days, his health did decline to the point that he went peacefully one night in his sleep to be with his Lord. And I was asked to preach at his funeral. And as I was preparing what to say at his funeral, I spent a lot of time in that Bible that he gave me. And I preached the the. Funeral sermon from the Bible that he gave me. And what struck me as I was preparing that message is that when his this man's body was falling apart, his faith in Christ was rock solid. And even though he could not use his legs to stand, he was still standing firmly on the rock of Jesus Christ just like his body was falling apart, the shell of this Bible was falling apart. But the truth inside the Bible stood firm, and the truths that he had hidden in his heart stood firm, because he had known what priorities to have. Yes, bodily health is important. He fought for his life, but he spent time in the Word of God hiding God's word in his heart so that when his eyes could no longer focus on the pages, he could still sing the songs of Zion because he had hidden them in his heart. Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness because the time will come where you cannot stand, where you cannot see, but you will still be able to see whom you serve and what he wants from you and when you stand face to face with him, you will hear those precious words. Well done, thou good and faithful faithful servant. And that is where he ends this section. He says, We have put our hope in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men, and especially of those who believe. So whom do I serve? I serve the living God the Savior of the world, who sent Christ into the world to save sinners. And what does he want? He wants faith that leads to godliness. Let's pray together.